Can everyone see me if I'm down here? There's no balcony today. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate that. Well, what a privilege to get to hear from Jeremy and Janelle. I'm grateful for your guys' words and your just encouragement to us. So thank you. As most, if not all of us, probably know, we are in the last week of our series on emotions and their place in our faith. And before I begin, I want to lay out three caveats. My first is this. Emotions are complex. We all experience emotion differently, and what you see is not always what you get. If you take a look at the screen behind me, there's a photo of the day of my college graduation, as you can probably tell. I'm with three of my closest friends. I had a little bit more hair than I do now. (laughs) And um, one might use words like happy, content, exuberant, to describe the expression on my face. Well, looks can be deceiving. Contrary to, ex- contrary to appearance, I was having one of the worst days of my life. It was actually a really bad day. I had slept for maybe two or three hours the night before, and I was um, going through one of the biggest crises of my life. Um, so again, what you see is not always what you get when it comes to emotions. There's no easy answers for this stuff. It's just complex. And there's no quick fixes when it comes to this part of life. So we have to take the long view. Caveat number two. Some of you sitting here this morning are perhaps hoping this series will do something for you that it can't. If these four weeks have brought things to the surface for you that require professional help, I want you to hear that that is okay. Our staff encourages counseling and the wise um, guidance of mental health professionals for various challenges in life. I can say I have done it and I have found it amazingly helpful. So I want you to know that if one of the takeaways from this series for you is that you decide to seek counseling, that's a really good thing. My third and final caveat is this. I'm 22, which means my frontal lobe is probably not yet fully developed. (laughs) It also means that I'm at the tail end of the generation affectionately known as millennials. A simple Google search on millennials and emotions yields articles with titles like those needy millennials, now they want hugs too, and why are so many millennials emotionally fragile, to name just a couple. One article compares us to snowflakes whose fragile beauty dissolves the moment we hit solid ground and who cannot handle, quote, adulting. Another calls us a generation of immature, narcissistic, and spoiled young adults. And the American Psychological Association has declared that millennials are the most stressed out generation. So clearly I am highly qualified to be preaching on emotion. (laughs) Let's begin with prayer. Lord, you are God and we are not. We proclaim and confess that this morning. We ask that you would draw our hearts and our minds towards yourself so that we might experience you more clearly and more deeply today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was younger, I used to think a person could only feel one emotion at a time. I'm a pretty emotive and expressive guy, as it's not hard to tell. So you can imagine the near levitation I experienced when I opened a highly desired Christmas gift, for example, in my elementary school years. 
I, I had a phase in which I was deeply interested and invested in the game of golf. And for a string of probably two or three years, most of the things I asked for at Christmas time revolved around it. So the time that elapsed between, say, opening a new pair of golf shoes and jumping through the air with them already strapped on my feet when I was maybe 13 years old was probably comparable to that of the acceleration time of a Tesla from zero to 60 miles per hour. It's about 2.8 seconds. Needless to say, I had no problem expressing excitement. Now you can also imagine the utter devastation I experienced as a junior hire when I dropped my coveted electric guitar, an Epiphone SG for those who care to know, on the hardwood floor of my childhood home. To say, I to say I sobbed incessantly would be an understatement. So whether it was bliss or dejection, euphoria or despair, I got a little louder there, sorry. It's my fault. Dave, we good? Okay. Uh, whether it was bliss or dejection, euphoria or despair, I felt it thoroughly to the exclusion of everything and anything else. Now, these examples probably seem a little contrived, and they're certainly trivial or insignificant, but they illustrate my once-held belief that pain and happiness could not coexist. This is actually a really common way of thinking. For example, people often think joy cannot exist alongside sorrow, that you either have one or you have the other. And my main point this morning is this, that rather than being mutually exclusive, joy and sorrow can and ought to coexist. Let me say that again. Joy and sorrow can and ought to coexist within us. As followers of Jesus, we need the capacity for both, not in succession, but as cohesive parts absorbed into the whole of our lives. It's not a revelatory or novel thought to say that the world is broken, that things are not as they should be, that darkness often appears to rule. It's not even a particularly Christian thought. One does not have to confess faith in Jesus Christ to recognize that the world is messed up. I mean, just read the news, and you'll be exposed to things like mass shootings, systemic racism and hatred, natural disasters, and other catastrophic evils that happen every single day. We can insulate ourselves from pain, we can shield our families and our children from the harsher difficulties of life, and we can seek comfort in fleeting distractions or pleasures, but sooner or later we must face the reality of living in a fallen, broken world. Now, it's also, on the other hand, not a revelatory or novel thought to say that the world is beautiful, full of wonder and light and life and love, as even the tiniest laugh in the face of a young baby or the utter delight of a golden retriever puppy reveals. Most, if not all of us in this room have experienced to some degree the simple beauties and pleasures of life, like texture and color and sound and art and music and the wonder of the natural world and moments that seem to brush up against the sacred. This too is not a particularly Christian thought. People with any varying degree of worldview or belief system can encounter and recognize the simple, transcendent, beautiful moments in life. Some of you sitting here this morning are overwhelmed by the reality of pain, death, and darkness. Perhaps it's all you can feel right now. Some of you may have confronted despair only cognitively or from a distance, while others of you are in the throes of utter existential isolation. Some of you sitting here might be in the midst of a season of great joy, 
Maybe you're in love or you're a new parent or you've witnessed or experienced some sort of reconciliation or forgiveness that's just restored your hope in the human potential. Others of you might be somewhere in the middle, totally indifferent between both extremes. Wherever we might find ourselves this particular morning at this particular moment, we must decide our response to a world that fosters both sorrow and joy. Do we neglect one for the sake of the other? Or can we somehow carry both? It's at this point that I want us to turn to Psalm 4. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, I'd love for you to open them. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Again, we're looking at Psalm 4, pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And uh, I'm going to read from the NRSV. It's a psalm of David, and it says this. Answer me when I call, O God of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, you people, shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me lie down in safety. Think about the narrator for a second. We know it's written by David, but we don't know when in his life he wrote it. The title of the psalm in the translation I read from, the NRSV, is Confident Plea for Deliverance from Enemies. Another translation renders the title An Evening Prayer for Help. What those enemies are, we don't know. What help David is in need of, we don't know. What specific challenge he may be encountering or experiencing, we do not know. But we know from the first line of the poem that David is in some sort of trouble. He's in need. And he's crying out to God for help. He's crying out for God to hear him and be gracious to him. Now, it might be a stretch to conclude that David is experiencing sorrow in the circumstance of this particular psalm, but it's certainly not a stretch to say that he experienced sorrow throughout his life. David suffered. This is a man whose own father-in-law tried diligently to kill him, whose baby child dies within days of being born, and whose adult sons sexually abuse their sister and murder one another until one of them tries to take his throne and is then killed in the process. David's family life is tragic, to say the least. This man knows the depths of human sorrow. So for some reason in this psalm, David is crying out to God. Now for most of us in this room, this is probably not a foreign concept. We know that when we ourselves are in need of any sort, we can cry out to God for help. We also know or we believe in faith or we want to believe in faith that God hears us. Scripture is full of reminders that God is always with us. There's nothing we can do and nowhere we can go to flee his presence and that God listens lovingly when we call to him. But if you think about it for a second, 
while we may trust that God listens to us, God does not usually do what we want him to do. Let me say that again. While we may trust that God listens to us, that God hears us, God does not usually do what we want him to do or what we might even expect him to do. We want deliverance from our circumstances, don't we? We want more than just God's presence. We want God to give us what we think is actually best on our terms according to our standards and judgment because we often think that our lives are only as good as our circumstances are. And this is exactly the lie to which the people David is speaking have surrendered in verse 6. The Good News translation puts it this way. There are many who pray, these are other believers, give us more blessings, O Lord. Look on us with kindness. In other words, give us what we want. We do this all the time, right? We subject God to a job description that we have defined and which we have determined is right and best, and then we experience disappointment or disillusionment or despair when he doesn't meet our expectations. And what we're expecting or longing for, I think, much of the time is better circumstances. Because better circumstances make us happy. That's sort of obvious. But happiness is not the same thing as joy, as Janelle touched on earlier this morning. Happiness is tied to circumstance, but joy transcends it. So if God does not conform to our expectations and change what happens to us, our circumstances, perhaps that's not what matters. Maybe we should start paying attention to what is happening in us. David could have yielded himself to a life of complete sorrow because of various challenges and circumstances he experienced throughout his life. But he didn't do that. He was a man of faith and he chose a different way, a better way. He said, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. He was attentive to the posture of his own heart, regardless of circumstance. What David is saying is that joy, unlike happiness, transcends circumstance. However, and I want you to hear me here, you cannot fabricate or manufacture joy. It is a gift from God. Like David said, it is God who has put that gladness in his heart. But that does not mean that joy simply overcomes sorrow. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Not who once mourned, but who mourn now. David shows throughout the Psalms his own deep expression of sorrow. He does not whitewash his emotional pain. He sits with it and he wrestles with his own suffering. And when suffering strikes in our own life or in the lives of those around us, of course we ought to take that seriously. And beyond our life or the lives of those we care about, there is so much to grieve about and mourn about in the world at large. We know that the world suffers. We see it and we often feel it. David says that God gave him room in his distress, and so we also ought to take the room we need to mourn and grieve and also off offer others the same when they need it. Mourning or sorrow, therefore, also transcends circumstance. It is also a way of being in the world, a posture of the heart alongside joy so that both occupy something in us and are given the weight and density that they deserve. So if everything I've just said is true, 
Joy and sorrow must somehow coexist within us. But you might ask, and I have asked myself, what does this actually look like? Well, I want to tell you a story, a brief story to help illustrate this. Close your eyes if you want, or just think um, it's imaginative. There'll be a couple slides on the screen in a few minutes. But there were three children who grew up in a house with a sprawling oak tree in the front yard. They would often climb its low-hanging branches and sit in its shade. They loved this tree. Then one day, the local power company informed them that they were coming to cut the tree down because it was obstructing too many power lines in the neighborhood. As soon as the power company and its wood chipper left, all that remained of the once intricately beautiful sprawling oak tree was a massive stump in the middle of the front yard. All three children sat in the living room, dejected, staring with tear-stained eyes through the window at the lonely, desolate stump. They sat there together all mourning the loss of their beloved tree. Pretty soon, one child could not bear looking at the stump anymore, and so she retreated to the backyard, seeking comfort by playing with the toys that were there and enjoying the beauty of the grass, the birds, and the fruit trees. The other two children could not take their eyes off the stump. Every day while their sister played in the backyard, they sat in the living room with their heads pressed against the window, staring out at the desolate remains of their beloved tree. The second child eventually realized that she had forgotten about the rest of the yard, and it was beginning to deteriorate. Now she had a choice to make to sit inside and continue staring at the stump, letting the rest of the yard wither, or to walk outside and start caring for it. And so she decided to do just that, to start tending to the yard around the stump. And slowly, thanks to this child's prudent care and attention, the yard began to spring to life again. She planted a garden and it started to grow and bear fruits and vegetables. As all this restoration was happening, her brother stayed inside, staring sullenly at the stump and wishing the tree would just come back. He didn't notice that the rest of the yard was becoming beautiful again. Because all he wanted was for the tree to return, and he clung to that false dream inside the safety of the living room. And as the, check, as the second child worked, she continued to feel sad almost all the time when she thought about her beloved tree. But she knew it wasn't coming back, and she also knew it was just too big to move. The stump was too big to move, and so she kept it there and incorporated it into the beauty of the rest of the yard. Clearly, the three children responded differently to their new circumstance. Their lives were shaped in different ways by the same event. The first child, after encountering the loss of the tree, sought comfort in fleeting distractions. Her reality was one of happiness in which ignorance became a form of bliss. The third child, the son, after encountering the same loss, let it consume him in a way that blinded him to the other areas of his life until he could see nothing but sorrow. But it was the second child who also had mourned the loss of the tree and yet eventually realized that she had a choice to make about the rest of her life. She carried sorrow with her, and the beauty and joy of the rest of the yard, or her life, did not overcome it, but actually included it, so that they were both parts of a larger whole. 
You see, she chose to pay attention not just what happened to her, the loss of the tree, but more so what was happening in her, restoration of life, not after suffering, but in the midst of it. You see, joy is a way of being in the world that incorporates and includes sorrow, so that both sorrow and joy can and ought to exist in the same, at the same time in the same person. Maybe there's a tree that's been cut down in your own life. Maybe it's the death of someone you care about, or a diagnosis of terminal illness, or a more discreet form of suffering like chronic pain or loneliness. Maybe it's simply a realization that the world was not as friendly as you once thought. Maybe it's just something that is debilitating you, someone that's just gnawing at you, and you don't even know quite what it is. Whatever it is, it's some form of loss and suffering which we are all in some way or another going to experience. And of course, it deserves to be grieved. Take the room you need to mourn. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Stick with it and turn yourself towards the Lord, even when you have nothing to say and perhaps no more faith left at all. You are not a worse Christian, I want you to hear this, if you don't feel joy right now. Even if you haven't felt joy for a very long time, we live in a fallen world that has much to mourn. Conversely, you are not a better Christian if you feel more joy than someone else right now. And if you happen to feel a deep sense of joy that transcends your own circumstance right now, it's not your place to tell someone who is suffering that they need to feel that too. Remember, joy is a gift from God, not something we impose on one another. Friends, regardless of what we feel, we must believe that even in the bleakest of circumstances, in the valley of the shadow of death, even when we have fallen flat on our faces in the dust, Jesus Christ is alive and at work restoring and redeeming creation, even when it feels like that could not be farther from the truth. So we've got to live in two worlds, two realities. Blessed are those who mourn on the one hand and be joyful always on the other. We've got to carry both joy and sorrow in our own lives and for the sake of the world. We have these glimpses of the coming kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Moments of being fully alive to the transcendent beauties of life and the goodness of God as we know him in Jesus. And yet we know they don't last. They awaken something in us, to be sure, but they soon fade into memory when we're crowded in by a world that's pretty dark, when we're staring at a lonely stump. These moments are foretastes of what is to come, moments of joy, but the kingdom has not yet come in fullness. We know this. Jesus is alive, but he has not yet come back to make all things new and right. And so now we are caught in between, and we have to live in the tension of a world that aches and longs for redemption and joy and even sees glimpses of it and yet is still fallen, broken, and suffering. Joy and sorrow both transcend circumstance. There are things I feel sad about all the time and there are also things I feel joyful about all the time and I believe that maturity is learning to carry both, to incorporate both into our way of being in the world as followers of Christ. They are both necessary as we live in the tension between a fallen world and a coming kingdom. Wherever you are this morning, in the undulations of your life, remember that you are a part of something bigger than yourself. 
that God is using you to transform this world towards light and life, and that whatever you are feeling, God is with you and God is alive. So how might you and I live for the kingdom this week, this day, this moment, when we can't see it or feel it? What is God trying to do in us regardless of what is happening to us? In other words, what is our reality? To whom do we pledge our allegiance, our trust, and our hope? To the things that are present, visible, and fleeting? Or to a God who is unseen in his presence with us and way bigger than we can imagine? who is building a kingdom of life and light and goodness and fullness over which we will one day reign with him. So as we close this series on emotion, I just want you to hear that you have freedom to feel what you feel, to express the depths of whatever you are going through. Take the room or the space that God has given you. Ponder it on your beds. Stick with it. And just remember that our hope is planted on Christ's resurrection from the dead. The belief that, however unlikely it might seem, life and not death has the final word. Let me say it again. Life and not death has the final word. We must believe that, even when we don't feel it. Joy, not sorrow, ends the story. And right now, we're in the middle of it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, we are alive in paradox. So let us be people who live for the kingdom when the kingdom is not obvious, eagerly awaiting the return of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day make all things new when we are raised to new life with him. We're going to transition to communion now. The lights are going to go down. The worship band's going to come back up. And as we turn to communion, which is a declaration of our faith in the God who brings life out of death, I want to remind you of something that you might not know. So maybe it's not a reminder, maybe it's a revelation. But in the early church, communion was a celebration. Christians gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the promises that resurrection ensured. A new reality had dawned, and Christians gathered to celebrate that dawning and to become participants in it, like we are now. And so yes, we remember with sorrow Christ's death as we take communion. But let us also remember this morning his resurrection to new life, in which he overcame death once and for all, just as we will when he returns.